So this is Explain It for Trinity uh, 18, and we will be focusing on the Gospel, which is Matthew chapter 22. So the devil, uh, when he comes and he attacks, he's been working like this from the very beginning. Uh, He attacks uh, three things, and perhaps you'll uh, recall what these three things are from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul says in that great chapter of love, um, you know, he says, uh, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is, is love. And so the devil has this attack, um, and he always tries to create an opposite. Um, so the opposite of faith would be unbelief or, or misbelief. Uh, the opposite of hope would be a despair. And the opposite of love, uh, Luther describes it in a really good way. Uh, he talks about it as other great shame and vice. That's kind of a, uh, old language, but it's that I- idea of um, uh, living uh, such a, a life that it is so centered on self that when you look at it from God's perspective, um, it's full of vice, not virtue, and uh, it should lead us to great, uh, great shame. Um, so this idea that the devil is always attacking faith, hope, and and love. And the good news is that Jesus and the gift of the Holy Spirit always wants to create these things in us. He is the author of uh, faith. He is the object of faith. Uh, He is the substance of hope. And he is the one who is described as perfectly uh, showing us what love is and then inviting us into that uh, that life of of love. And so um, another way to think of this is that um, in the Garden of Eden, in Paradise, in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, uh, we've often, all, often heard about original sin, but not so much about original righteousness. Now, original righteousness, um, you could look at it this way, that if uh, you take the Ten Commandments, God's law, and if you were to perfectly fulfill them, live them, out uh, in relation to God and one another, and uh, do that perfectly, well, that would be original righteousness. So always loving God, always loving the, always loving the neighbor. Um, and so that would be this idea of original righteousness. But in Genesis chapter 3, we lose this original righteousness, this perfect love for God and for the neighbor and for the creation. And now we live in the state where we call it original sin, uh, where our nature uh, has been so corrupted, so turned in upon itself, that these beautiful things, faith, hope, and love, uh, which were given to us um, by God, uh, are now uh, constantly under attack. Um, And so we have lost this true love of God, true trust uh, uh, in God, uh, true hope in God, true love for God and for for one another. Uh, But, good news, uh, God is the God who wants to always create, and you even hear this language, he wants to establish in us a new creation, wants to reestablish this righteousness, not our own, but the the one from our brother, the Lord Jesus, and to to declare us then righteous and to live uh, in new ways uh, toward God and toward one another. So, we pray this prayer, lead us not into temptation. Um, So, there was no need to pray this prayer in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, but in Genesis chapters 3, it should be on our lips all the time. So, what does this mean, Luther says? 
Well, God indeed tempts no one, but we pray in this petition that God would guard and keep us. And here's our, here's our foes, right? The devil, the world, and our own sinful flesh. And they may not deceive us into misbelief. So that would be against faith. Despair, that would be against hope. Another great shame and vice, that would be against, uh, against love. And says, and though we be assailed by them, that still we may finally overcome and gain the victory. And so there is this continual fight, this ongoing, and maybe some of you are wondering, can't we ever get this locked down? You know, can't we ever just like declare victory, put a line in the sand and hey, we're done with this. Well, just as there is an ongoing fight, because we live uh, with ongoing enemies of the devil, the world and ourselves, our own sinful flesh. Uh, so also there's ongoing gifts that God gives to us. And so the fight is on. That's a good, I think that's a good thing to remember is that if you're right in the middle of this, this intense warfare, uh, count yourself as one among uh, the family of God, one in the kingdom, uh, that you're fully aware of these things that are going on, but also um, not vulnerable in the sense of... Um, you know, that, that you're going to be uh, attacked uh, without the help of God, but rather vulnerable in the sense of, well, to whom shall we go? And we cry out and our brother comes to our, our side, the Lord Jesus. So this is the context then of the gospel. And we're going to see that Jesus himself, and I, I just wish I um, you know, was given the grace to be able to act like this in many opportunities um, but but you'll see, if you read Matthew chapter 22, that there's always these schemers around Jesus, and they're always trying to set traps. And, uh, you know, I'm one who's pretty good at figuring things out after the event, you know, so I don't know if you're like that, uh, where you get in a situation, and all of a sudden, you know, you're like, oh, hey, did I just, did I just get am ambushed by something here, whether it was the devil, the world, or or myself? And then, you know, it's only after the fact where you're walking away from it and you're saying, you know what, I should have. And uh, you come up with all these great things that you should have said. But Jesus, when uh, put into these places of uh, traps, and um, um, he, he knows exactly how to answer. So these traps are set for Jesus in Matthew chapter 20, 22. So teacher, so should we pay the tax to Caesar or not? And Jesus says, so, well, look at the coin. I mean, whose image is on it? And they said, well, Caesar's. And he says, well, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Uh, teacher, um, there's this woman and she got married and uh, her husband died, but she had a number of brothers. And so she, according to the law, successively uh, married each of the brothers and then they died, um, all of them. So which one is uh, going to be her husband in uh, in the resurrection. Now, it's interesting because the Sadducees are asking this question, and the Sadducees don't even believe in the resurrection. So, uh, somewhat hypocritical just to kind of on the face of it. Um, but Jesus answers them. He says, well, you're in error. You don't know the scriptures. All right, they're kind of silenced. So then this final um, attempt is, so teacher, what's the greatest commandment? And this is the text for the gospel, which is the greatest commandment in the law. And Jesus answers them, and he silences them by quoting, quoting the scriptures, um, and just as he did in Matthew chapter four to the to the serpent. So I find it pretty um, uh, intriguing and interesting 
to see that when we fight the devil, the world, and our own sinful flesh, when we fight these things that come against faith, hope, and love, if we are left with our own devices and our own words and our own thoughts and our own plans, uh, we're going to fail. But if we can answer these attacks with God's word, it is written, well, we find that these attacks then are silenced. Um, not because we're smart, not because we have discipline, not because um, we figured out something and are just a little bit more tricky than our, uh, the one who comes against us. No, we answer with, with truth. And uh, the truth being Christ himself. So let's hear how Jesus does this. Matthew 22. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together, and one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. So, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Well, Jesus replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. He says, this is the first and greatest commandment, and then the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus quotes appropriately from the Law of Moses, from Deuteronomy and Leviticus. He says, all the Law and the Prophets hang on these two commandments. So he's asked, what's the greatest commandment? Well, love. Um, Well, what does that look? Love God, love neighbor. And if you were with us during our time studying the commandments, then you found that uh, we broke that down with uh, commandments one through three, speaking of this love for God, and then four through through 10, speaking of the love for for the neighbor. So um, this continues on throughout the Gospels, this idea, so what does love look like? And there is this, um, there is this sense of externals that uh, the world wants to look at. You know, if we just keep the external idea of it and um, uh, don't really expose what's really going in the, on the heart, then we can have and feign a, a, a sense of spirituality. But Jesus goes beyond that, and he says in Matthew chapter 5, his Sermon on the Mount, he says, so you've heard it said, but I tell you. You'll, you'll hear that refrain often in Matthew chapter 5. You've heard it said, but I tell you. You've heard it said that you should not kill. He says, but I tell you, if you're angry, you've committed murder. You've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, and all of you think you are keeping that commandment, but I tell you, he says, if you look lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. So what, what Jesus is doing there is he's joining two things. So if you think of love as the key word, he joins that love towards two, love toward God and love toward neighbor. So you can't separate those out. So sin against the neighbor is joined to a sin against God. First uh, John 4 John says, we love because he first loved us. And so if anyone says, I love God and yet hates his brother, is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So, you know, it is very um, appealing. And I, I can see why in the, in the 1500s it was very appealing to search out spirituality in ways that were separated from the world. Because if you're not living with the world, if you're not living in the vocation of the family, or you have to kind of interact with people all the time, you can just huddle yourself off somewhere in, uh, in a monastery 
and uh, you have this sense that you are living the spiritual life. But God um, says, you know, again, love towards God means love towards neighbor. Sin against neighbor equals sin against God. So we cannot separate out this this idea of two realms of of spirituality. One is, you know, yeah, I, I, you know, between me and God, everything's okay, but then live without reconciliation toward the neighbor as well. Uh, John says, if, if you say you love God and you hate your brother, uh, there, is, uh, there is deception that's going on. There is lying. Uh, you can't love um, God, he's, he says, uh, who is unseen. If you are not loving or, let's put it this way, um, are in a repentant state and are saying, I'm sorry and I want to do better and I want to love the neighbor. Right? So anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he's given us, again, this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So this is not new language. Jesus says it in the gospel, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. Um, the great section in John 15 where he talks about abiding in Christ. You know, I'm the vine, you are the branches. So sometimes, you know, again, we get very spiritual here and we say, well, I'm abiding in Christ. I'm doing all these spiritual things. I'm reading my Bible. You know, I'm going to worship. I'm meditating. I'm, I'm having these, these quiet moments. Uh, I'm contemplating the, the love of Christ. Uh, but God wants to connect these things so intricately that he says, you know, Greater love is no one than this, that he laid down his life. Lay down his life for his friends in this context. But he is also clear that that also means um, to pray for um, not just the ones that are in our little tribe, but our enemies as, as well. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples. So there is this attack, again, against faith, hope, and love. And so the good news is that Christ does not leave us, you know, isolated in this uh, battle, but rather he is the one who perfectly loves, doesn't he? Um, and shows us this way of love and uh, does not say now, okay, I've kind of charted the course here for you. So now um, I want you to follow me perfectly because there is, again, this other wonderful gift that comes from the perfect work of Christ, which is this perfect one, takes on all of our sin. So there's this, we call it this um, great exchange, this vicarious atonement, big word, which just means the one who knew no sin becomes sin for us. And then he gives to us his, his righteousness. Um, and so now we live um, with Christ Jesus the one who is for us, and he also um, is beside us, and he is leading us in this way, uh, this way of love. Now, so here's the first, second, and third article. We confessed it in the Nicene Creed. So, you know, I, I found that this is a way um, sometimes to reset our thinking. So if God the Father created all, all, all things, right, all creatures, all nations, all peoples, all races. Um, if God the Father created all and he sustains all, what then should our, our um, thoughts, our actions, our deeds be towards the creation? Uh, I remember the 
missionary in Africa telling his um, his pastors who had come, he says, well, you know, I have a garden here. God had a garden too. So let's take care of the garden. And when we take care of this garden here, we're also taking care of God's garden. Uh, so that was a call to be a good steward of the, of the creation. Uh, if God the Son redeemed all, which means there's no one outside of his uh, loving uh, redemption. There's no one that Christ has not died for. Now, um, how would that change the way that we look at the world and those who, who are um, um, in our life? And if God the Holy Spirit desires all to be saved and freely gives his word to all, uh, what would that look like? How would that change then the perspective that we have? Um, so, you know, 2020 uh, showed us a broken world, right, physically. Um, uh, and it's also in the, in the way that it works in a society and a culture, um, a broken world. But God wants to recreate it. Um, 2020 has shown us, too, what we trust in. And is it faith in the triune God or is it our own idols? And it's shown us um, our sin. So what happens when we're vulnerable and things are out of control? Who do we run to? To whom shall we go? And when we are at our end and we don't know what to do anymore and uh, we are beyond our capacity to fix things, um, we're relying on gifts and the Holy Spirit does not hold those um, away from us, but freely opens his hand to us. Now, interesting, it kind of takes a, takes a turn here in the gospel lesson, and it goes into this idea of whose son then is the Christ. And I'll, I'll give you a reference point to Psalm 110, where uh, it's, a, it's a messianic psalm, which means it's a Jesus psalm, where Psalm 110 says, uh, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So the Pharisees are gathering together and ask Jesus, so what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? So Christ is just the, uh, the designated term for Messiah. So they're basically saying, Messiah, you know, what do you think about Messiah? Whose son is he? Um, the son of David, they reply. Well, that was a, a prophetic that the Messiah would come from the line, the lineage of David. So he said to them, well, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, and Jesus quotes Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Jesus continues, he says, if then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So let me let me give it a, a shot here to try and explain it. So when David, speaking by the Spirit of Christ, says, uh, The Lord said to my Lord. So the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. In other words, you could do it this way. The Lord, uh, God the Father, said to his son, and David says, I know that son is going to be my Lord, my Savior. So God the Father said to his son, You sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your, your feet. So 
the Pharisees knew exactly what Jesus was trying to get at. Jesus was saying, ah, so whose son is the Messiah? And they say, well, he's the son of David. They got the humanity right. But what Jesus did was connected here that the son of man is also going to be the son of, of God. And that this son of man and son of God is right in front of them. And they're going to reject that. And they're going to fight it. And they're going to crucify him. But on the third day, he will die for them and he will rise again. And as Psalm 110 says, he will be at the right hand of the Father and all of the enemies. Well, what are they? The enemies, the trap for Jesus. You don't know the scriptures, which is the greatest commandment. All the enemies go against faith, hope, and love. And Jesus puts all of those enemies, uh, the attack of the devil, um, the attack of this world, the attack of our sinful flesh, and all these set traps for us. We respond to them by quoting the scriptures as the word of God, the truth. And we then live out of that, which is, uh, which is the command of love. So good news for us, right? Our brother uh, is not distant from us. Uh, he has encountered all of these, oh, let's call them uh, attacks of the evil one, temptations. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. Uh, he is uh, the one who speaks the truth to us. And he forever builds faith, hope, and love into our, uh, into our lives. Now, now, one closing thought. I was always kind of thinking, so faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. So why is the greatest of these love? Well, um, all right, well, if we think about it, if we have faith in this world, uh, we need an object to trust in. Um, but the scriptures talk about us also, you know, always living by faith and not by sight. But when we... Um, are either brought to Christ or when Christ reappears, what will our faith be turned into? Well, we'll see Christ face to face. So we had All Saints Day celebration, um, and the idea was is that these saints are before Christ. They see him face to face. They no longer need faith. So faith turns to sight. Hope. Well, in this world, we always are, are hoping there is always an object that we trust in the promises of Christ. But when we are with Christ, hope now is fulfilled. We have the substance of the hope right, right there in front of us. The substance of the hope is Christ. And so there is no longer need uh, for hope, no longer need for faith. But love, love is in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. It's distorted and perverted and corrupted and um, challenged all the time in Genesis chapters 3 all the way through the end of the world. But we're called to live out of it, right? But in eternity, guess what love's always going to be? It's going to be love. It's not going to end. It's not going to be any different. The love that we have for God and love for neighbor is not going to change. We are called to live that out here in a way that um, God himself is working and growing in a new creation within us, but it will be perfectly fulfilled. And once again, we will love God um, perfectly, and we will love the neighbor uh, perfectly. And that's why when it says faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is 
is love.